Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Beat podcast. The mission of our podcast is to show the real-life challenges of implemented technology in healthcare. The podcast is sponsored by Demigas, a company that develops IT solutions for healthcare startups and companies. And for more information, you can check on the website, demigas.com. My name is Ivan Dunsky, and I am joined uh, today by an honored guest, Erika Tyburski. Erika is the founder and CEO of wellness and diagnostics uh, startup Sanguina, which helps to address the anemia uh, disease. Erika is a mother, wife, a baseball fan, CEO, and co-founder who has had anemia since childhood. Throughout her life, she has been frustrated by the lack of simple anemia testing and management solutions. And that's how Sanguina was created. Erica, thanks for joining. How are you today? It's my pleasure. I am doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, Erica, could you please give a brief background of uh, who you are and what is the story uh, behind Sanguina? Sure. As you said, uh, it's come from motivation with my own struggles with anemia. So I grew up uh, down south in Miami, Florida, in the United States. And I remember going through the stages of life and actually passing out during grade school and middle school. And for an elementary school child, that is quite horrific because you get all this attention that you don't want and (laughs) you get to go to the emergency room and an ambulance Mm -hmm. and It's just a huge pain. And I remember the result always being you have iron deficiency, you have this anemia, and so we need to get a better plan for you. And so actually, strangely enough, I was jealous of diabetics that could screen themselves whenever they wanted to in their homes, even though it was a little um, finger prick test. And so having a few members with diabetes, I got to see that from a very young age and just wanted something that could be in place for anemia. That said, I've always been interested in science and technology and healthcare, even from a young age. I got into a math and science high school, which then led me to getting into Georgia Tech here in Atlanta for biomedical engineering. So I did my undergrad in biomed, have been very interested in medical devices, health management, and wellness ever since. And if you will, Sanguina is a university spin-out. So we've met our our original co-founders all were connected with the Georgia Institute of Technology ecosystem, include clinicians, doctors, engineers. And so we're, you know, a bunch of nerds to start really. And we spun out, became a company shortly after. And that was pretty much the start. So we started as an academic spin out and our first platforms are indeed around anemia management. Yeah, cool. It's a very inspiring story. And that's great when founders solve their own problems and issues and uh, yeah that's great when you can collaborate with with the people also who share that ideas and like yeah that's very valuable could you please tell us uh, more about your products and how exactly you help people with the disease sure and just to follow up on that although it's been a very personal story for me anemia for everyone listening it's characterized by low hemoglobin levels And in many cases, it's due to nutritional deficiency. So in the U.S. and other developed areas, iron deficiency, B12, and folate deficiency anemia is very common. Um, But it can also be associated with other acute and chronic illnesses. So going through 
chemotherapy for cancer, going through any sort of chronic illnesses, you can also be anemic. And there's 2 billion people that suffer from anemia. It's not just me. In fact, some of my other co-founders also have their own stories with anemia. So just something to point out. All of them suffer from anemia? We all have a story, you know, if you will. There's always someone who knows somebody that has anemia. In one of my co-founders' cases, he actually has his own version of anemia, totally different from mine. But again, it can coexist with many things. Now, as far as management, uh, right now, what you have to do is go to a doctor's office and have a venous blood draw. So there's a tech and they have to um, have the skills and the operation to get a venous blood draw out of your arm. And so there was really nothing that people could do at home on the go for themselves for management. So we looked to fill that gap and we've come up with a few technologies. It's called the AnemoCheck platform. And essentially there are a couple different things that work in management and tracking of anemia. So our first product is called AnemoCheck Mobile. It is a smartphone application. It actually estimates your hemoglobin level by looking at the paleness of your nail beds. So it's very cool. It is available on iOS and Android right now in the United States. Please check it out. It's free right now. So <laughs> please try it out and let me know what you think. We also have a second product that we're aiming for FDA um, clearance on as a medical tool, which is very similar to a diabetic test in which a small amount of blood from a finger stick would mix with a pre-filled bio solution and the color would correlate to your hemoglobin level. Um, so those products can work together or apart, but essentially we're providing different options for people with anemia for management and tracking. Yeah, let's maybe step back and could you please uh, tell us what causes this disease and what are consequences for people who suffer from the disease? Like what's happening really? Sure. So with anemia, essentially you have low hemoglobin and Hemoglobin is actually the part of your blood that, that makes it red. It holds iron and it holds something called heme. It's responsible for the oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in your blood. So it's very important for any bodily function and any cellular activity. So when you have anemia, you feel very tired and you may get headaches more often, fatigue. You may be short of breath as well. And it is at least with our company's perspective, because it affects so many people in so many different ways, it can really be treated as a vital sign because there's not just one reason why you have it or you don't, <laughs> but it is generally something that makes you feel bad. And if it's severe enough, you know, that can progress to very life-threatening situations. So if you have severe anemia, very low levels of hemoglobin, it can actually cause cardiovascular collapse, which is unfortunately um, not uncommon in low resource settings worldwide. Mm -hmm. And what causes the, the disease? It's really a, a marker of many different potential things. So in my case, it's less nutritional absorption. So essentially as iron and B12 and folate aren't absorbed as well as they should in my body, um, it, it doesn't um, allow for the hemoglobin level to remain sustained and it begins to drop. So essentially you need iron in order for the hemoglobin level, the, the hemoglobin to actually bind to the cell in order to deliver oxygen and carbon dioxide. So without getting too technical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering if that is during the life or in majority of cases that happens in the childhood and early years. Oh, sure. It's not necessarily age dependent. In my case, I think you can have issues with absorption from a very young age and through puberty, it can become a little bit more burdensome. 
I know that young kids are more prone to it as they're changing from having breast milk and more liquid foods to converting to solid. At some point, their body really needs to start having that solid food as a source of some of these nutrients. So they are at risk if that transition isn't fast enough for depleting. And then it is also much more common in the elderly. So yes, so of all of the elderly in the United States and, and, and worldwide, you are at a higher risk for anemia. So it's uh, kind of pretty similar to di- diabetes. It happens later in life. Right? It can really happen whenever, but I do know that um, being older, you are at a higher risk group. So it's not totally tied with diabetes or any other chronic disease. Again, it's almost like having high blood pressure or low blood pressure. There are many reasons why that might happen. But yes, as you get older, those risks increase sometimes. Yeah, got And uh, as you research the disease, do you see that the trend is going up in terms of how many patients uh, suffer from the disease? Is the number of patients growing or or not? Yes. So unfortunately, um, in the pandemic state we've been in, there's been a lot of focus on respiratory conditions and, you know, the actual virus conditions. And not just with anemia or any of the diseases associated with it, I think there's been a lot of focus shifted away from other chronic diseases that were being managed prior to the pandemic, um, which have now been managed less just as a result of not going physically into a doctor's office or into the hospital or clinic you'd normally go into if it wasn't COVID. So with other chronic diseases, maybe diabetes is one or chronic kidney disease, We've certainly seen some of those chronic illnesses become more complicated over time because they haven't had the attention they needed during the pandemic. So unfortunately, we are seeing an increase, and I know that the healthcare systems worldwide are trying to catch up with that. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, could you please tell us how your users become familiar with your products and how they really start using your products? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier with our app, we are available on both the Google Play and Apple stores. You can find us on the app stores. Is it like the usual way how users find you, just Googling? We have a a fair bit of users that find us like that. We also have a website, so it's www.sanguina.com. And we do a lot of social media interaction as Mm -hmm. well as, you know, finding people digitally. You know, we launched this product back in December of last year. So we've only been on live, if you will, for five months or so, but it was in the middle of a pandemic. So really we've done everything digitally to reach out and engage with our users. Mm-hmm. Cool. And do you do any distribution through healthcare providers or insurers? Not yet. So I will say with the app product, it is positioned as a health and wellness tool. So it's designed to help you track and monitor. It's not intended to replace a doctor's visit. It's almost like a support tool that you can use with your doctor. So to take one step back, the user has everything in their own hands. So if a user wants to share any information or data with a healthcare provider, they are able to, but we're not linked to any healthcare provider networks right now with that product. As for the product that we hope to get FDA clearance on, there are certainly opportunities to be working directly with physicians and their satellite clinics, point of care settings, where they might want some testing on site. So again, because anemia is so widespread, there are several different use models and who could use it. And the current product is, is mostly used for diagnostics, right? So it helps a patient to understand what is the current status 
of him and then to do some actions. That's the, the main case, right? The app is being used as a health and wellness tool. So it's another piece of information in mm-hmm. your health journey. So there are many things that people track now, steps, blood pressure, pulse, sleep yep. even. So this is just another thing you can add in. And especially for people with nutritional deficiency anemia, it's well established that you should have a certain amount of nutrition, daily values for certain um, vitamins. And for the vast majority of people, they actually know that they already have some sort of risk factor for anemia. So for them, it just helps have some additional information. As for our home product, what we call it home, AnemoCheck Home, the one that we're aiming for FDA clearance on, this would be more of a diagnostic test that could be used for hemoglobin level determination to help inform decision-making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are next steps for an end patient after he got the numbers, he sees like the data, what are, what are next steps for him? Like um, to take some medication or like what are possible outcomes? Yeah, it depends. So with any home-based products, we're going to recommend you consult with your healthcare provider, whoever that may be, a physician, someone who's your caretaker. If you see th- some threshold was reached, right? You suggest to use, to, to go to, to see the specialist. Yes. There should always be follow-up, especially if there's something alarming that is seen. Yeah, yeah. And again, that'll change based on the person, right? So for some um, users, they may have a normal baseline at a certain level and say, if I have a chronic condition, my baseline might be lower but that might be okay. You know, my doctors and I might talk about it and we might understand that, you know, I live lower than what a healthy person is, but when I get even lower than that, then I've got problems, right? So, and even in some cases you can get too high. So it's something that you really have to follow up with your physician or caretaker on because there could be so many reasons why you're going up or down. But in general, like I said, most of the people that find us are, are like me. They know why they have this problem. And usually they know what treatment they're on. Perhaps they're already on a regimen of some kind. And then they can bring this information to their doctor and say, look, maybe I need to go up or down, but let's assess together. Again, it's especially in a pandemic world, it's just nice to have a little bit more remote access to information so that both patients and doctors can make decisions together. Yeah, it also can help you to do some predictive actions like to act proactively rather than reactively. Yeah. Yes, um, very much so. Could you please tell us about how did you develop the first version of the product? Because that's essential part of um, every startup journey to kick off the project and have that first uh, version that helps you to get traction. What was your story? Sure. We have a unique story because I myself had this motivation to be working on it. I got paired with a professor at Georgia Tech. His name is Wilbur Lamb. He runs a bioengineering lab, but he is also a clinical hematologist oncologist. And on top of that works with pediatric patients. I was in a very lucky position to have access to clinical populations in very Mm -hmm. early testing and development. It's a very fortunate position that I was in. That said, I started working on this as a senior design project. So after being paired with Wilbur, the prompt was create a test for low resource settings for people that have anemia. And as soon as I saw anemia, I said, okay, I have to do this project. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I got paired with him. I started actually working on our AnemoCheck home product. So the, the chemical and blood test first. In 2017, we actually got 
FDA clearance for it for clinical setting use, which I know I haven't mentioned too much on this call. But interestingly enough, on that journey, I met a guy named Robert Menino, who was doing his PhD also in Wilbur Lamb's lab. And he has his own story of his own struggles with anemia, very similar passion and drive to myself. And it was actually his PhD project behind the mobile app that's currently available um, in the market. And so we actually developed technologies in parallel that would attack anemia from a different angle. And it's, it's very interesting because I come from the background of nutritional deficiency and I'm really in need of a general wellness tool. And his background is anemia from a chronic condition. So it's very interesting because we actually created products for each other more so than for ourselves, because the app is something I can use a lot more than something that is more medical diagnostic in the context of chronic disease. But that said, we decided to join forces when he finished his PhD. That was back in 2018, late in the year. And since then, we've been able to create paths for development and marketing for both of our products together. So it was a happy marriage of our team, if you will. Cool. And how did you ship the product to patients? How you got the feedback? What was the process of doing that? Oh, sure. So like I said um, earlier, we've had access to clinical populations. So what that means is that with the collaborating clinical institutions, we were actually able to start what's called a study, a clinical study, Mm -hmm. several actually with both of those technologies in order to test them on real patients that had different degrees of anemia for different reasons. So what that means is creating a study protocol, getting it approved by an institutional review board, and then going going into the clinic and actually having people use the different technologies. So we were able to do that even, even still in the context of the academic setting, which is very early. There are many stories wherein you have to fully spin out and do it on your own. And because of our situation with Georgia Tech and its relationship with Emory University and its hospitals and clinics, which is all made possible because of our, honestly, just fortunate luck to be paired with Wilbur, who has this clinical service piece to what he does. He was able to connect dots a lot earlier for us. So we were in the clinic actually testing on patients during development. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very good. <laughs> How did the product change after you got the the feedback from patients? Was it similar to the original vision or it changed during that process? In both cases, we received a lot of information on how to make it better. So Mm -hmm. for the physical products and the apps, we did what's called a usability part of our study, wherein we'd actually ask people, okay, use it yourself. And we observe them and see where they had difficulty, what was confusing. Mm -hmm. And for an app, it was very different for me because I came from more of the physical device development background. But Mm -hmm. there are many different intuitive things that you can do to make your app more usable. So truth be told, when we first started testing, the app looks so different than what's currently available to you guys on the app stores today. Um, You know, different color schemes, different sizing where it's intuitive to click. In our case, we're capturing an image of nail beds. So instructing a user on how to do that correctly so that the nail beds are not too close, not too far, and you have the right conditions around that, that proved to be something we learned with respect to the app. And then as far as the color-based technology, it requires a a finger stick for a small amount of blood. Mm -hmm. And performing the finger stick, although 
it's been done a hundred times, you still want to tell the user very clearly, this is the tips, this is what you should do, you know, you should wash your hands, you should warm your hands, this is where you, you have a video <laughs> tutorial. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's that's absolutely right. So it, it spurred us to create instructional videos for both the mm -hmm. app and the physical product. Mm -hmm. So yes, usability testing and feedback completely changed what our products look like. Cool. Could you please tell us, uh, you already mentioned the, the studies. So did the first product also require FDA approval? So uh, historically, right, we've had our Anemo check, we'll call it Gen 1, and it was a color-based test with a blood finger prick. We mm -hmm. do have FDA clearance on that as a hemoglobin determination test, again, for U.S. use in, in clinical settings. And the Anemo check home product that's currently in process that's the one that essentially uses the same exact core chemical technology as the Gen 1, but we've put it into a user-friendly embodiment with an onboard control in order for someone at home to use it. So those are some of the big requirements you need for a home test. Someone needs to know that the test is working and it needs to be very easy to hold. You minimize chances of any spilling or error. And so it's, it's the same core technology, but just packaged differently, if you will. The app came in between them. So truth be told, when the pandemic hit, we actually flipped around our company strategy. We were initially planning on going for the physical products first in close succession. But when the pandemic hit, all of the clinical sites essentially shut down unless you were testing for COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so with, like I said, a lot of other chronic diseases just kind of fell by the wayside. And so we realized for the app, we could, we had this opportunity to create something that was remotely accessible in a world of social distancing and not being able to go to hospitals. And so we flipped our, our idea. So we actually had the app in between those and it's currently available now. And, you know, it's actually been, it's been okay for our company. We were able to make the switch and we luckily had the support of many different sorts of remote access via the patient groups and even support from different clinics and doctors that realized in the pandemic we would have to do some things remotely yeah right could you please tell us about this process of fda approval how difficult it is maybe what are the stages for you and what challenges you face oh sure it is an achievement to get what what fda calls a clearance if you go the 510k route which most devices do Essentially, it is different for every device. So that said, I'm not in a position to give regulatory advice on this call. But what I can say is, That's at least in our, yeah, in our case, you have a predicate device. Essentially, you're comparing to something that measures the same parameter you are. You do a lot of different studies to show that your device is robust and that it works in different conditions. And you go head to head in a clinical study, usually to show that your test does equal to or better than your predicate device. And so that's usually the biggest piece of it, you know, somewhere between 300 and 500 uh, different users or patients that are in this study. And essentially you show FDA that I'm substantially equivalent to this other test that's on the market and you go from there. When you talk about home tests, there's also usability that's involved. So they do want to see that you've observed users, you know that the test is reasonably going to work for them. There are many studies that go into it, but those are the big pieces. Does it also require to see the feedback of the larger population or like three, 500 is enough to get the clearance? 
Well, I guess it depends. So when you set up testing, you are testing about that number for a 510k, at least in our case, that said for other conditions, FDA might want more, even allow less to go through. And that's just the actual physical testing. There's also a risk benefit analysis that you may do and show FDA that this is the situation that's going on in the field. This is why our test could be useful. And that's where you can really highlight the big populations that you're going for. That said, there's a balance between how many people you can literally test because it could be a very expensive study versus mm -hmm. getting on the market. Yeah. So there's a balance. How, how long did it take you? What, what is the, the length of, the, of this process for you? Well, it depends because development is a lot of it. So No, I, I mean approval. So again, it will depend. In our case, we submitted, we got some feedback in around 90 days. We answered more questions in around another 90. So between mm -hmm. six and nine months, there's a, a bit of back and forth if there are questions. Mm -hmm. Got mm -hmm. it. Could you please tell, share your plans on distributing the products? Like, will you do that using healthcare providers, payers? Will you do that directly to patients? Like, what is the strategy? Sure. We, we're starting direct-to-consumer, and mm -hmm. that's evidenced by our first product in market right now. We're going direct-to-consumer and right now building a population of advocates and users that love our work. This is the best <laughs> strategy. The get more word of mouth, yeah? Yes, that, that is very true, especially in the space we're in. So we're not really tackling the lab testing arena. Our goal, again, if we go back to the mission of people like Rob and myself, is really to bring things more accessible in the home setting. So that said, I think there's a lot of techniques and learnings we can take from the consumer goods space to really understand how things reach different people in the home setting or in the word of mouth setting, if you will. That said, we are planning with our physical product. It'll likely be sent out via subscriptions, but directly to your home. And once we achieve mid-sized volume on any sort of those product strategies, we'll certainly consider help from big distributors. But to start, we are going to be doing it on our own. Got it. Mm -hmm. Do you already have, or maybe you plan to use machine learning to work with your data? That's a great question. I think as of right now, um, all of our trade secrets and machine learning techniques are trade secret, <laughs> if you will. But sure. we do intend to use them, especially with app-based technologies. And I know we've spoken a lot about our anemia platform. There are other platforms that are under wraps right now, but we're working on them for other parameters. And we'll certainly be using machine learning for them. With any smartphone application that's capturing images or videos, there are little tricks you can learn as you get more data. And we are collecting a lot of image data, if you will. And we're learning a lot about how people take pictures, what's the usual ambiance in the picture. So we are going to be taking that data and making the app better and more effective as best we can with it, which is likely to include machine learning. Yeah. And actually, do you plan to integrate with the existing EHR and EMR systems to pull data from Sanguina to their systems and like to enrich data, patient data, um, which physicians see? Yeah, see, it's a good idea. And I think a lot of companies have tried to integrate with different medical record systems. I don't think the resistance will come from the Sanguina side. I think there's a lot of logistics to work out on the medical record side. And from what I understand, there are thousands of different systems out there that different hospital systems use. And 
I know that many companies have tried to do that. So at least initially, we're not looking to make that a core part of our business model. But I'm hoping, you know, in general, outside of my own company, <laughs> I'm also hoping that there will be some more integrative solutions with medical records and how people can interact with point of care and home tests, how to keep all the information streamlined. I know that's a big project, though. Could you please tell if you plan to provide any tools for physicians so that they can see patient data on this side or how actually patients show their data to, to physicians? Sure. So in our current app, you can actually share all of your information. So it's tracked and it's held right there for you. It's essentially exported and it can be emailed to yourself or whoever you authorize. So it is a pretty simple download and export. And from there, you know, a physician and patient may just talk about it. The physician may incorporate it into their own records. It's really on a case by case and really depends on the physician and patient relationship. So yeah, in this case, not much of importance of integrating it with EMRs. Right. It's again, if we can streamline sharing on our side, it's what we can do right now. And we definitely aim to, you know, make that accessible for both the patient, but if they choose that they want it to be accessible for the doctor, we're making it possible on our side as much as we can. But yeah, getting other parties to buy in, it's just not something we control. How many users do you have from other countries? From other countries. So we are only live in the U.S. right now. So mm -hmm. that said, we do have a few studies going on and we are looking to launch in a few other countries, likely in Southeast Asia or Africa. There's a lot of anemia in those areas. So it is something we're acutely aware of. We've done so much to understand the U.S. market and how people use it here. We do want to do our, our good bit of due diligence in other countries before launching. So hoping to have a launch in internationally, but not quite yet. And what about Europe? Yep. EU is, is also on that list. I know we're doing some studies with them. And, you know, from a company perspective, we're also looking at potential business to business interactions and contracts we can make. To find distributors who, who would distribute the product, you mean? Well, to be honest, they've all come to us. We've gotten a lot of interest from supplement companies, from different drug companies that have different reasons to worry about anemia and different reasons to target anemia. And so we're in a lot of discussions right now with countries, with all sorts of countries to try and understand whether we can make our app available. But again, it is something that we pride ourselves on is being backed by science and making sure that we've done our due diligence to make sure the product is going to work for the intended user. And so we're in the process of doing that diligence for a number of different countries and regions we would launch in, potentially with partners to make it simpler. Is it required to make a study if you want to launch a product in for every country? You yeah. just mentioned that you're <laughs> doing study for Europe and for Africa. So does it mean that you need to make study for every geography or like how does it happen? In my experience, it depends on the use case. So... Again, we've spoken a lot about the US FDA and our understanding of that. You know, each country has its own regulatory authority and mm -hmm. they may or may not have different rules than the US. So that said, it is part of our process to understand what, if any, regulatory issues we should be thinking about. And there are some countries that, you know, won't require any sort of testing. So it is, you know, it's something that's case by case. And it really depends on what the user wants, right? So if the use case is highly clinical right? That, that's going to have a different context than if it's 
more of a health and wellness wearable, like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. sure. Cool. Yeah, we are coming to the end of the interview and I have a question for you. What kind of advice can you give to early stage entrepreneurs uh, who want to build and, and, and launch the health tech product? Coming from the medical device background, I would have a good understanding of the use case, who would pay for it, if there is any regulatory involved. Those tend to be the stumbling blocks when someone has a great idea. So just consider all of them and balancing them out so that you create a path to market. And with any entrepreneurial venture, be adaptable. I mean, we were faced with something unprecedented in this pandemic. And as mm-hmm. I went through our business strategy, totally flipped. And you know, we were able to read the information, understand our options, and then progress forward, honestly, on a pretty successful path so far. So it's been a silver lining for us that we made that choice. You know, and the other thing is, if I were to go back and see myself 10 years ago, I would say, just don't be afraid as much. You know what you're talking about. You're going to learn every single day from many different angles. And, you know, you really will be the master of your own product, the expert of it. So it's okay to put yourself out there to ask questions. And I don't know, I just, I wouldn't be as afraid. <laughs> yeah. And I think that uh, you're a bright example of, how you solve your own problems you experienced the problem and you understood clearly the problem that's i think very important and also a team of skillful people that you had from the early early beginning that's uh, precious Mm -hmm. yeah thank you and i would like to end this interview on a more personal level and i have a little exercise called rapid fire round. I will ask you several questions and you give answers whatever you come up with. Do you have a hobby? What is your hobby? I have several. So I like to jazzercise. If you're not familiar, it's a cardiovascular group exercise, really popular in many places of the world. So I jazzercise. I also like to garden quite a bit. It doesn't mean I'm very good at it, but this year I have a goal to keep an orchid alive. Cool. What is the location that impressed you the most? Ooh, I went snorkeling off the coast of Costa Rica one year, and I actually saw wild sea turtles, which I've heard is very rare to see wild sea turtles. So that was very exciting for me. And I love snorkeling and anything aquatic and marine. So I would say probably a snorkeling trip, and and that one was the best. (laughs) And what is the piece of advice you would give to your 20 years old? Oh, I stole this one from you. I wouldn't be as afraid. I would take more initiative and not be afraid to ask questions and not be afraid to pursue different things. Because again, you on an entrepreneurial journey, you really are the expert of what you're doing and you're going to learn more. You know, the worst thing usually people can say is no, and it's okay with me now. <laughs> I don't believe that you afraid of anything and you were afraid in your twenties. <laughs> I've graduated quite a bit. It's <laughs> it's been a good it's been a good a good time for me. But yeah, I think, you know, coming out of school, I think everyone's a little bit nervous and what am I gonna do? Do I go into industry? And in the US, you know, having student debt, it's like, what am I gonna do? And I definitely took a chance in working on this and pursuing this company as opposed to doing a normal job but it's proved good and I've gotten a lot more confident. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a perfect way to end today's interview. 
Thank you, Erica, for sharing your story. I think that's very valuable how we showed your path from the early beginning to, through all the stages and what are the stages could be and how you could be prepared for each stage. Yeah, thank you for your precious advices. And yeah, before we finish, what is the best way to get in touch with you if somebody would want? Well, I think, as I mentioned, we have a digital presence. So we have live Instagram and Facebook pages. Our website no, is... No, I mean be... personally you. Oh, <laughs> if you reach out via our channels, it'll come to me so I can uh, okay. connect with you. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So if you just search my name, I'm happy to talk to you guys and give advice as I can. Yeah, all the links will be included um, in the description. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, all listeners. And we will get in touch in the next episodes. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.